Welcome to the podcast series of the Notre Dame Program of Constitutional Studies. The Program of Constitutional Studies here at Notre Dame fosters research and teaching on the philosophical principles of constitutional government and the American constitutional tradition. Enjoy today's podcast. Thank you, everyone, for coming. My name is Philip Munoz. I direct our Constitutional Studies program. I'm a professor here of political science, and it's uh, my pleasure to welcome you to today's uh, lecture. Uh, just a few announcements before we, uh, we begin. Um, a week from today, uh, in fact, uh, this exact same time, uh, and I think this exact same room, uh, we're doing a book launch uh, for my colleague uh, Kathleen Cummings. Um, wonderful new book, A Saint of Our Own. Uh, please come back for that. It's, it's really a wonderful book. And uh, we have two fantastic commentators, George Weigel, who I'm sure many of you know, and uh, Ken Woodward. Um, uh, two very distinguished uh, writers and journalists. So come back a week from today, uh, 4 o'clock, uh, Thursday the 26th, uh, here in this room. Um, a week from tomorrow, uh, our friends at the Nicola Center for Ethics and Culture will be hosting George Weigel, who will be lecturing on his uh, new book. Uh, and that's going to be n noon uh, up in the Oak Room. So that's a week from uh, uh, tomorrow. Okay, so please join us uh, for both those uh, events. Um, I want to thank uh, my class this afternoon. Uh, we, this is, and we're, we're making our speaker do double duty. He's, he's already given a full lecture today to my class, uh, which was wonderful. I want to just hold up his book with he's going to be speaking on, uh, which is, I've been reading it myself this week. It's absolutely wonderful. But to do a proper introduction, let me introduce one of our Tocqueville fellows. Uh, Andrew Slattery is a senior here at Notre Dame, a PLS major and a constitutional studies minor, and the starting shortstop on my softball team. So, Andrew. Thank you, Professor Munoz. Good afternoon, everyone. Today, we welcome Dr. Arthur Brooks, a best-selling author and a distinguished scholar and professor to our campus here at the University of Notre Dame. As part of that welcome, I am tasked with a very difficult enterprise, summing up the extensive resume he has accumulated over his entire career. Among the many highlights, Dr. Brooks served as the president of the American Enterprise Institute, commonly referred to as AEI, and is now serving as a professor of the practice of public leadership at the Harvard Kennedy School, while also studying as a senior fellow at Harvard Business School. He is a columnist for the Washington Post and a podcast host on his very own show titled, as you may have guessed, The Arthur Brooks Show. While for most people, the written and spoken word would be enough, Dr. Brooks upped the ante this year with his feature-length documentary titled The Pursuit, which was released this past spring of 2019. Though there's much to learn from and discuss in regards to Dr. Brooks's scholarly career, today we gather to hear about his latest book, Love Your Enemies, which was also released in the spring of 2019. Love Your Enemies confronts the cultural and political divide that shapes American political, political discourse today, while also providing an outlook on how to bridge those divides. The relevance of this issue in modern America makes Dr. Dr. Brooks's book and talk here today both informative and necessary. I believe I speak for all of us here at the Tocqueville program that we are eager to learn and deliberate over the ideas Dr. Brooks has to offer. So without further ado, Dr. Brooks. I'm all set. Thank you. Uh, thanks for that gracious introduction. Thanks to all of you. It's a delight to be here. It's always great to be at Notre Dame. Um, this is a, a place that I've enjoyed coming over the course of my career. It never fails to make me wonder why I'm not here full time. Um, so congratulations to all of you who are. 
Um, I, I was here about two years ago giving a talk uh, about something that was on my mind, about what I called the culture of contempt that was washing across this country. And it was on my mind, and I gave this talk, and, and, and I went back and I wrote a book about it. And that's the book that's up here today. And now I'm back to talk about the book, but I realize that if I do that, I'm going to give the same speech that I gave two years ago, more or less. And I don't want to do that. I thought, well, I don't really need to do that either. I'm in Notre Dame. I can talk about what's really on my heart. This is, this is not mixed company. You're like me. We care about the same things. We're from the same community. You wouldn't be in Notre Dame if that weren't true. So I want to talk not about loving your enemies. I want to talk about what matters most, and that's love. I want to do a talk over the next 40 minutes or so where I talk about the art and science of love and how we can use it. How we can use it in our work, how we can get more of it in our lives. And I want to start by making the case that it's the only thing that really matters. Now, of course, I'm speaking biblically at this point. I mean, you look at, uh, this is one of the most famous passages in the New Testament from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's read at everybody's wedding. But there's one particular verse that, that, is, uh, that is, uh, pertains to the, uh, the high caliber intellectual activity at this great university. It's the second verse of the 13th chapter. Though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, but have not love, I'm nothing. Do we have the love that is more important than our learning? Well, I want to talk today about how we can make that possible. How in the life of the mind, we must integrate actual love for each other. And only that will make us capable of solving the crises of our time. It will make us potent problem solvers today. And in point of fact, how it's changed my life. I'll wind up my talk today talking about this book, but I want to go back to the very beginning first. And I want to tell you a little bit about my mentor, a man named James Q. Wilson. He's the person who influenced me intellectually the most. Maybe some of you have heard of him. Probably the most influential uh, uh, political scientist of the past 100 years. James Q. Wilson was a professor at Harvard for decades. Uh, uh, he wrote treatises on everything from bureaucracy to crime to the importance of morality and human existence. Uh, he sat in on my doctoral dissertation defense when I was finishing my PhD which went very poorly. And, uh, but afterward, he said, you know, I see some promise in you. Let's keep in touch. And I did. And he wrote the foreword to my first book when I was an academic when I was teaching at Syracuse. And then later, I came to the American Enterprise Institute, and he was on my board until he died. He gave me some of the best advice I ever got. And before he died, he said something to me that I couldn't quite get out of my head. I mean, this is a great man. This is an icon of public policy. And he said, don't forget that policy only affects people at the 5% margin of their lives. And I, I said, well, you could have told me that before I got a PhD in public policy, Jim. Um, but then I had the real question, which is, OK, what's the other 95%? And he said, mostly just love. Hmm. Now, that sounds kind of soft, doesn't it? Kind of like sentimentalism from, a, from an old guy who is kind of looking back on his life. Well, it's not. James Q. Wilson was razor sharp. And love is a tough thing. He's not talking about feelings. Remember how love is defined by St. Thomas Aquinas, to will the good of the other. That's how we talk about it in the Catholic community. That's how we should talk about it. This is love is not a question of feelings. Love is a question of will. Love is a question of action. Are you strong enough to love or not? That's the real question that we should ask ourselves, isn't it? 
And so therefore, if that's true, it's a tough thing, it's a strong thing, if it's a razor sharp thing, we should be able to look at it as social scientists and it is dignified every bit as much as any other thing that we would study. <laughs> Jim Wilson told me that and I, I decided to go in search of how to use this central truth, how to apply 1 Corinthians to my life as a policy analyst to dignify this kind of axiom from my mentor. And I found this story from the Annals of Public Policy that really had a big impact on me. And I want to tell you about it. It turns back the clock to 1969 and a major policy crisis. The Nixon administration was just coming into office. It was the spring of 1969 and they had a big problem on their hands which was the utter failure of the Vietnam War. And then a question, what explained the lack of effectiveness of the American troops in Vietnam? They had really low productivity, they were losing battles that they should win, the morale was incredibly low, and there are lots of possible explanations for it, but they wanted to know the best truth as, as, as much as researchers could find it. So they put researchers into the field, they commissioned a study, and they found what they thought was the best answer. It was not what they were expecting. 20% of active duty U.S. military uh, uh, troops in Vietnam were addicted to heroin. One in five. Now, they knew drugs were a problem, but 20% of active military in Vietnam were heroin addicts. Well, no wonder it wasn't going so well. <laughs> now, that was a policy problem per se. What do you do? What do you actually do? <laughs> but then their minds turned to the next public policy problem was what happens when these guys come home? All these men are going to come home. We're going to be flooding our, thousands and thousands of men flooding our neighborhoods and our towns and our cities with heroin addicts. What are we going to do? So they put together a 10-point policy plan. This is what we do in the policy world, a 10-point plan. Drug interdiction and, and public health and, and policing and all the things that policymakers can do. And then, and then the Nixon administration and the government, they braced themselves and the guys came home and nothing happened. Not, they couldn't explain it. 90% of the drug-addicted veterans stopped using heroin spontaneously on their first day home and only 5% relapsed in the next 12 months. Nobody has ever seen anything like this, <laughs> ever. Why? Heroin is the most addictive substance in the world. There has never been a good technique for getting people de-addicted to opiates. And this is a, a problem that's only grown in the interim. We're in the middle of our worst opiate crisis in U.S. history right now. Just ask any drug specialist and they'll tell you getting people not addicted to opiates who are addicted is a big problem. So, so what happened to the guys who came home from Vietnam? Well, for a clue, ask anybody who's been addicted to opiates. I made my living as a musician for many years. I've talked to people who've used drugs a lot. And, and, and when you talk to people who've been addicted to drugs, they're amazingly forthcoming with their experiences. They will share. And you ask, what is, I've asked this question before. I know it sounds like a prurient question. What does heroin feel like? What does it feel like? Do you ever wonder? You know what they say often? I've heard this again and again and again. It feels like pure love, pure love. They say it over and over again. Well, well, guess what happened to the guys when they came home from Vietnam? They got the real thing for the first time sometimes in years. They were reunited with their wives and their kids and their parents and their friends. And it turns out that chemical love isn't so necessary when you get the real thing, right? What am I telling you? Love 
Trump's policy. James Q. Wilson was right. St. Paul of the Corinthians was right. The, the policy's meaningless. You can have perfect vision. It's meaningless unless you, uh, uh, if you don't understand the underlying power behind human relationships, which is based in love. Hmm. Now, the idea that love is more important than anything else that we can do, this, there's nothing really new. Let me quote, you know, this is something you, you read in high school and have forgotten. Um, this is Shakespeare's 29th sonnet. Uh, I'll, 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 uh, I'll abridge it, so I'm not here all day. When in disgrace with fortune in men's eyes, I alone beweep my outcast state. Happily, I think on thee. For thy sweet love remembered such wealth brings, that then I scorn to change my state with kings. Love beats everything all day long. It's what you want. And if we can understand this, we can solve problems that were previously unsolvable. That was poetry in 1609, and that was a policy mystery in 1969, and today it's science. Let me tell you what was actually going on in 1969 that we didn't understand then and we do now. It's the love molecule. It's the neurotransmitter called oxytocin. Over the past 20 years, there have been tremendous advances in our study of neurotransmitters and how they affect the brain, how they affect behavior, how they affect emotions. Oxytocin is the neurotransmitter that makes us bond to each other in the experience of human love, particularly when we make eye contact with each other. It's what you feel when you're reunited with somebody that you love. The burst of pleasure that you get, that's oxytocin. It's being, it's being stimulated. It's, it's, it's sort of exploding inside your brain, and it's pure pleasure. Well, it turns out that heroin fills the receptors for oxytocin because it's very chemically similar. That's why it makes you feel love. <laughs> but you want the real thing. You want the oxytocin. You can only get that with human contact, however. You know what you get it the most? is the first time you lay eyes on your infant child. I'd heard this. You know, this, the, the research was in his infancy when my wife was pregnant with our first child, who's now 21. He's graduating from college this year. And, you know, she was, and I, I'm, you know, I was working on my dissertation. You know, I'm a social scientist, and so I'm not having normal human cognition or emotions. I was kind of, you know, and, and I thought to myself, you know, Who's to say that I'll love this baby any more than I would any strange baby? Why is that the case? <laughs> and I went into the, into the delivery room, and, and they, they let me, you know, when, you, when you're the dad, they let you feel like you're actually participating while keeping you out of the way. And, uh, and, and I helped deliver my son, Joaquin is his name, and, and they put him in my arms, and <laughs> something popped inside my brain. I couldn't explain it. And I would have died for him at that moment. I said, oh, now I understand. I will not leave him on the bus or whatever, right? And it's like, this is different than anything I've ever felt. And it happened again with my second child. Our third child, this was a natural experiment, a social scientist's dream. We adopted our third child. And I thought, I wonder if it's the same. I wonder if it has to do with your, being your biological child. And I went by myself to adopt her from an orphanage in China. And I picked her up, and she was, a, she was a, a toddler at this point. And she grabbed my shirt and looked up at me with her little coal-colored eyes, and it happened again. <laughs> and it happens every time I see her. <laughs> That's oxytocin. That is the life in life. That's a gift from God. 
That is how we understand a good deal of this. And if we cannot work with that, we cannot apprehend this, if we cannot understand that, that in point of fact, love is part of life and not just a bunch of amorphous feelings, we will never solve the biggest problems. We'll be stuck with suboptimal solutions to the biggest problems in life over and over again. So lesson number one that I want to give to you, offered to you today, is that love trumps policy. Look for the love solutions and big problems first. And I want to do that in two cases today. I want to find what I think are the two biggest problems in America today, in American life today. And I want to give you what I think are the love solutions. And then I'm going to give you homework. before Because I'm a professor at Harvard, so I get to do that. I'm going to give all of you homework, things that I want you to do within the next two weeks on the basis of what we talk about here today. So buckle up. Problem number one is an epidemic of loneliness. The Cigna, the health services company, the health insurance company, has, a, has deployed a team of researchers and physicians to study the subject of loneliness. They're paying something like 45 people right now to understand why America is so lonely. Now, why would they spend all this money? And the answer is because loneliness is expensive. It's implicated in depression, anxiety, even suicide. And when you're a health services company, you want to get to the bottom of that particular problem. Why do they think it is such a big problem today? Because they're simply looking at the numbers. There is a loneliness epidemic, and it's particularly acute among young adults. People in every age group, in point of fact, but especially among young adults. It's interesting that you find that for the first time, people in college say that they're lonelier than people in their 20s. People in their 20s say they're lonelier than people in their 30s. It's an inverted, it's an inverted uh, pyramid of loneliness. Ordinarily, as you get a little older, you get lonelier because you're farther away from your most of the social part of your life. Usually, being in, college, being in college is tough, right? Being in college, you're insecure. It's very tough. It's a hard time in your life. But you're not lonely, right? Today, we find that 18 to 22 is the loneliest period in a young adult's life. What's going on with this? How can we fix this? I started looking into this problem. I had the chief research officer from Cigna on my podcast, and he was explaining it to me. And I thought to myself, well, let's not look for the policy solutions. Let's look for the love solutions. What can we actually do that will bring love into the lives of people that apparently don't find it or are not finding it? This connects to another issue that I've been looking at recently. I was looking at data as recently as three years ago that were really super good news. Okay? I was looking at falling rates of sexually transmitted infections, falling rates of unintended pregnancies, and falling abortion rates. All super good news to me and every single person in this room. Nothing to not love about that. <laughs> and then I put two and two together and saw I didn't like the reason for that good news. What is it? People are not falling in love. So it's weird, you know. I'm looking at the data that show that people in their 20s today are a third less likely to be in love than people were when I was in my 20s. A third less likely. I look at data, these are brand new data, that show that, that when I was uh, a senior in high school in the 1980s, 85% of high school seniors dated. Today, 56% date. Look, in my profession, you never get data like that. A 30, basically a 30-point drop in something over one generation, that's a big change. 
almost everything that we look at, we see that the likelihood of being married in one's 20s has fallen by 50% since the 1980s. People are less likely to date, less likely to be in love, less likely to get married, less likely to have relationships. That leads to loneliness. That's why people are in their 20s and in their teens are lonely. So what's going on? What's the problem? What's the, what's the, 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 the culprit for this? You talk to a lot of researchers and they have a very simple explanation. It's called social media. Right? Social media. People are not looking at each other in person. They're more likely to be socializing with each other from far away. They don't get an oxytocin explosion. There's zero oxytocin that actually comes from Instagram. Um, and it's like negative oxytocin on Twitter. That's like evil. <laughs> What's going on? It's basically a substitute of, 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 of electronic relationships for real relationships. And as such, we are lonelier, notwithstanding the fact that we have lots of human connection. It's just not authentic. It's not satisfying human connection. So I hear that explanation over and over again. But you know what? I don't buy it. And the reason I don't buy it is not because I doubt the data on social media and the deleterious impact it's having on people's lives. In point of fact, the more you use social media, and this is true for all of us, including people my age, the more depressed you will be. Every hour on social media is an hour you will be less happy. That is true. As you know, George W. Bush used to say, that's a true fact. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's actually downstream from the real problem that we have today. And let me tell you why. I have a, a friend, his name, he teaches at, at New York University. His name is Jonathan Haidt. And he's doing work on fear, on a culture of fear among young people. I believe that social media is becoming more predominant as a substitute for real relationships because people are increasingly afraid of real relationships. Now, my basis for saying this is biblical among other things. 1 John 4.18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. All social psychologists understand that the absolute negative emotion is not hate, it's fear. Fear is the opposite of love. Hate is downstream from fear. You want to know what's antagonistic to love in our lives? It's fear. Fear of things, fear of circumstances, fear of the future, fear of each other. If you want more love in your life and you have a problem, you have too much fear. It's axiomatic. You need to take on your fear. Okay? Now, that's actually not just biblical. It's also social scientific. We've known this for a long time. So therefore, if I find a love crisis for people in their 20s, I'm going to find too much fear among people in their 20s. Fear of what? The answer is social rejection. Now, now. Why would people be suddenly afraid? Why would we suddenly get a, a, a generation of people that are afraid of social rejection? That's so weird that it would suddenly come up. I was talking to John Haidt, John in the Haidt, the, the researcher at NYU about this. Like, who's to blame for that? And he said, you are. I said, what did I do? <laughs> he said, well, he said, and he asked me a very interesting question. I mean, the guy's great. Some of you know his research. It's phenomenal. It's interesting. It's, and he said, he asked me this question. He said, how old were you uh, the first time that you went out of the house by yourself, like walking to school or did a, an errand for your mom? I said, I don't know, like five, <laughs> right? And he said, how old were your kids? I said, I don't know, like 13. <laughs> he said, is that good for them to not be exposed to the great outdoors, to not take any risk? 
He said, you and everybody your age have stopped letting your kids take risks. And I thought about it, and you know, he's not wrong. When I was a kid growing up in a working class neighborhood in Seattle, and uh, this is in the 70s and 80s, and, and, and um, particularly in the, in, the, in the mid to late 70s, I had this paper route, right? And so I would throw papers at 4.30 every morning. I was had a ton of money in my pocket, it was great. And I was, I was like fifth grade. And now, as a little bit of background, this is the same neighborhood that two or three years earlier, Ted Bundy had been marauding through, right? Same, literally the same neighborhood that Ted Bundy had been kidnapping and killing people. Okay, now what, it's not funny, people. It's not funny, who laughed? Anyway, so, and, <clears throat> so I remember my parents having this argument about whether, because everybody was in a, in a panic about serial killers for the first time, right? It's like serial killers, it's dangerous. You could snatch any kid, any place. And, and, and my, my mom, making the case to my dad, we shouldn't let him keep a paper route. We're basically walking around alone in the middle of the night. And I remember my dad, no, my dad had a PhD in biostatistics. I mean, he was Mr. Rational. And I remember him saying, well, you know, I've been thinking about this, and I have to, I have to say, I don't believe that Arthur is in a serial killer's core demographic. <laughs> so I say we let him keep the route. <laughs> and I kept the route. Look, it was a different time, and we, we, maybe we were way out on the end of the curve on, on risk management. But the truth is it has changed. We have become, we as parents have become more fearful, and we expose our kids to less risk, and we transmit that fear. Fear is a, is a pathogen. Fear is a contagion. No wonder people are worried about it. They're, we adjudicate their disputes. We helicopter parent them. When there's a problem at school, we get involved, for Pete's sake. Then they go to college. Maybe not Notre Dame, but a lot of places all over the, the college world. What do they find in college? They find trigger warnings. They find safe spaces. They're not exposed to ideas with which they disagree. They're unable, because they're not exposed to disagreement, they're unable to adjudicate disputes. No wonder they're afraid. They don't have enough, they don't have enough experience with the frictions of daily life. Hmm. So what's the love solution to this? I know the public policy solutions. Look, I can talk all day about not having trigger warnings and microaggressions and all that nonsense on college campuses. You know, and I, and I, and I teach on a college campus. So there's something I can do about it, kinda. Right? But huh, there's gotta be a bigger solution, isn't there? That has to do with love, has to do with risk. And I was thinking about it. I was talking to a group of people in their 20s. This was really first going through my mind in Washington, D.C. This is the world's worst romantic market, Washington, D.C. It's totally dysfunctional. You know, I'll talk to these young guys at AEI where I was the president for a long time. There were a lot of young guys in their, in their, you know, in their 20s. And, and I would talk to them and they would kind of confide in me. And, yeah, I've been dating this girl for a while. How long? Eight years. Like, <laughs> you know, and uh, what do you think I should do? Like, I, I know exactly what you should do. I know exactly. You need to take a risk, man. You need to take a risk. Well, it's really scary. What are you talking about? Take a risk in love. So I was telling this group of young people, they were all in their 20s. It was this, like all the, the congressional staff of people. It's an enormous group on Capitol Hill. And they're all, almost all single, and they're just like wrapped with attention about this. I said, look, do you want to live your life like a startup or not? Because that's your startup. I mean, forget the business. That's boring. 
Your life is an enterprise. Live it as such. Take a risk for explosive reward. Declare your love. See what happens. That was pretty clever. <laughs> so two weeks later, I'm on a plane. And a guy comes up to me, young guy, 28, 29. He says, are you Dr. Brooks? I said, yeah. He says, I saw you give that speech about taking a risk with my heart on Capitol Hill a couple weeks ago. I said, yeah. He says, I can't get it out of my head. I said, yeah. He says, I'm on my way right now. There's this woman. I've been in love with her for two years. I never told her. I'm going to tell her. <laughs> I'm going to tell her I'm in love with her. And I want to... I want to be with her. I want to see where it goes. Maybe we spend the rest of our lives together. And I'm like, have you been drinking? <laughs> and so, and then he goes and he sits down. And, and, and I'm like, you know, I like say my rosary for him. And, um, and then I don't hear from him or see him for two or three months. I gave him my email. I said, let me know what happens. He didn't hear from him. I'm like, this can't be good. I see him a couple of months later at a party at, at, at NDC, a, a Christmas party. And I go running up because his, his face is burned into my brain. And I go running up to him and, and I said, so, you remember me? And he says, oh, yeah. <laughs> I said, what happened with that girl? And he said, she shot me down with great prejudice. She not only shot me down, she introduced me to the man that she was actually in love with. He said it was brutal. And I, and I was very contrite, right? Because I'm like popping off with all this profound advice. But look, I've been married for 28 years. I mean, easy for me to say. And then I said, I'm sorry. His name is Rommel. And if you want, to, you want to hear his story, he was on my podcast. Because I had a whole podcast. My last podcast season was about love. And he actually he came on my show and told this story. It's amazing. This, um, he apparently is not, doesn't have a, a real sense of shame. Anyway, so... Um, <laughs> <laughs> He's a great guy. He's a great guy. And he, I said, I'm, so, I'm sorry. And he said, no, no, no. He said, I've been meaning to call you to thank you. I thought, what's wrong with you, man? He said, no. He said, I've been meaning to thank you because I'm not afraid anymore. I'm not afraid anymore because the worst thing in my life, <laughs> it happened to me and I didn't die. You know, we, we, we forget how hard it is on young people. We forget how hard it was on us. You got to do it. You got to run through it. You ever notice that the most courageous, joyful people you've ever met have been to war? Hmm. You got to take risk. And then he said something that really stuck with me. He said, you know, and also, you know, 20 or 30 years from now, I'm going to be married, no doubt. And, and I'll probably have a big fight with my wife. And, and I probably would have said, well, it could have been better if I had married her. But now I know she didn't like me. So there was no chance. <laughs> it saved me a whole bunch of grief and regret, and, 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 and maybe it could have been different. And, and, and here's the point. The, the, the risk with love is the solution to this problem. We need to create a generation of people that are willing to take a risk with their hearts, the way that a lot of us did. We can do that, but we've got to change our culture. I'm going to make you into an agent of that near the end of my talk when I give you your homework. Okay, now problem number two. Problem number two is what my book is about, which is um, the culture of contempt in our society. The, not the crisis of romantic love, but the crisis of brotherly love. In, uh, in, in, the, in the spring of 2014, I was uh, 
I, was, I read an article in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. It's one of the most prestigious uh, science journal, popular science journals um, going by three social psychologists at Northwestern. <clears throat> There's an article about something called motive attribution asymmetry. You know, it's like that, that's what we do in academia. We have a really fancy title for a really simple concept, and then we get tenure. <clears throat> so, and the, the political, the motive attribution asymmetry is a, is a simple idea. It's a case where you have implacable hostile conflict between people or groups, and both sides think that they're motivated by love, but the other side is motivated by hatred. Now, that's a cognitive error. Both sides can't be right. You can't be both motivated by love and both motivated by hate. One side is wrong, usually both. Now, it's an important concept because it explains intractable conflicts such as the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. It's a good explanation for it. It's based on survey research. Okay? So you say that both sides, yeah, I'm motivated by love. Love for my people, love for my country. The other side, they're motivated by pure hatred for me. Okay? Now, why do I point this out? Why did this article catch my eye? Because these researchers found that for the very first time, this is in 2014, before the current era of politics as we really know it, that Democrats and Republicans were exhibiting the same level of motive attribution and symmetry as the Palestinians and Israelis. I thought, whoa, this is a freight train coming down tracks at this country. This is going to be bad. And I had it on my mind, right? I mean, I read that article. I'm like, this is worse than I thought. Now, I travel around a lot. Um, when I was the president of AEI, I did like 175 speeches a year. So I was on the road all the time. Sharing ideas is what I do for a living. I love it. I talk to all kinds of audiences, left-wing audiences, right-wing audiences, I don't care. I'll talk to everybody about, about my favorite are Catholic audiences, by the way. And um, when I was, I was doing this, in a couple of months after I read this article, I was doing a speech in New Hampshire for a very conservative audience, actually 600 conservative activists, super fired up. And I got to the event and I noticed I was the only person on the program who was not running for president. <clears throat> and you know, 2014, Everybody in the world was go- wanted to run for pre- was the you know the Republican president. It's like the Democrats are today. It's like 675 candidates. I can't count. It was the same for the Republicans back in 2014. <laughs> so it was like candidate, 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 me, candidate, candidate, candidate. It's a mistake. No, no such thing as a mistake. Opportunity. So I listened to a couple of their speeches before I went on, and it was all the same thing. They were like throwing raw steaks out into the audience, right? People gobbling them up and applause lines about how terrible the Democrats are, how terrible the liberals are. Hmm. And so I, and I, I, I stood in wait. And I went out and I gave my remarks. And I was talking about you know, economic policy and foreign policy, boring stuff. But in the middle, I stopped and I said, my friends, I know that you agree with the things that I'm saying here today. But I want you to think from a focus your attention on the people who are not here. They're not here because they wouldn't be comfortable here. They wouldn't be comfortable here because they're political progressives. They disagree with these things. They would be uncomfortable in this audience today. And I want you to remember that they're not stupid and they're not evil. They're just Americans who disagree with us on public policy. It was not an applause line. (laughs) But there was an applause line that came after that. Because this lady, God bless her, she yells out, I think they're stupid and evil. (laughs) Yeah. And, 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 And I didn't. I didn't feel offended because she wasn't trying to repudiate me or offend me. She was making a joke in kind of a festive atmosphere. But it was an epiphany for me at that moment because I saw the problem coming and I saw the love solution in that moment. What was it? Well, to begin with, it occurred to me how incredibly impractical that whole attitude is. Nobody in history has ever been insulted into agreement. 
It is incredibly unpersuasive to say that anybody is stupid and evil. You will never bring anybody to your point of view. And that's one of the reasons that nobody is convincing anybody in America today. We are locked down. Motive attribution asymmetry guarantees that your audience will not grow. Right? That's a fact. But it, that here, here's, the, here's the real epiphany, the moral epiphany. When that lady said that, I think they're stupid and evil. You know what I thought of? Seattle. Because it's my hometown. I grew up in a family. My father was a college professor and my mother was an artist. What do you think their politics were in Seattle, Washington? <laughs> I'm the black sheep. I'm the outlier in my family. And let me tell you, a lot of things I disagreed with all my parents about. They were not stupid and they were not evil. They were great parents. They valued education. They valued they had, they had good values. I was brought up in a Christian home, and they encouraged me to think for myself, which I did at great inconvenience to them. <laughs> and when that lady said that, I thought, she's talking about my mom. And I took it personally. My friends, this is the love solution to the polarization problem in America today, which is taking it personally when somebody on your side trashes somebody on the other side. My dad used to say that the mark of moral leadership, moral leadership, is not standing up to the people with whom you disagree. This is what they always teach kids on college campuses today. Stand up for your right. Stand up to the people with whom you disagree. Shut them down. Make your voice heard. Fine. Fine. But that's not moral leadership. Moral leadership, courage, comes from standing up to people with whom you agree on behalf of those with whom you disagree. Are we strong enough to do that or not? Because that requires pure love. Something else requires the intestinal fortitude to stand up and yell. It's something else entirely to stand up to people on your own side because you have so much love, including for those with whom you disagree. Hmm. How do we do that? How can we do more of that? How can we turn that into a plan of action? Hmm. That's my book. Now, there's a lot in it, but let me tell you just a couple of things that I want to put on your, I want to put on your hearts. <clears throat> the problem that we have with motivation attribution asymmetry, it's very easy to reduce it to anger, to angry in this country. Everybody yelling at each other. Turn on cable TV if you dare. Right? It's not an anger problem. If only it were an anger problem. It is an interesting fact for your consumption. Anger and divorce are uncorrelated in marriages. Uncorrelated. Why? Because anger is a hot emotion. It says, I care what you think and I want you to change. I care enough to want you to change. It's, it's interesting. I mean, literally uncorrelated with divorce. And, you know, I've been married for 28 years to a Spaniard. And the secret to my 28 happy years of marriage, you know what it is? is the lack of correlation of anger and divorce. <laughs> so what is it that's a problem in marriages? Okay? The answer is you take anger and you mix in another cognition called disgust, which makes contempt. Contempt is anger plus disgust. It takes hot anger and it turns it ice cold. It goes from saying, I care what you think and I want you to change, to I don't care what you think and I don't care about you. It says... You're worthless and so are your ideas. Now, you would never say this to somebody except your worst enemy. Interestingly, expressions of contempt are the leading indicator of divorce. I have a friend named John Gottman. He's been on my show before. He's the world's leading expert in marital reconciliation. He teaches at the University of Washington. As a matter of fact, he has the Gottman Marriage Laboratory. This guy's a hero. 
How, you know, anybody who, he's brought thousands of couples back together again that were going to get divorced. And anybody who brings moms and dads back together again in love, keeps families together, that guy's my hero, hands down. So I brought him into my show and I said, how do you, you know, how do you know when somebody's going to get divorced? And he claims he can tell with 97% accuracy if a couple will be divorced within three years within one hour of a counseling session. So what are you looking for? Because I don't want to do it, whatever you're seeing, right? <laughs> you know what he says? Eye rolling. Eye rolling, the main indicator, the leading indicator that somebody's treating another with contempt, which is sarcastic, which is derisive, which is dismissive, which basically says, that is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. You would never say that to the person that, to whom you owe the greatest love, and yet people do that all the time. Here's his point, and, and actually it's a very good news point that John Gottman makes. Couples that are going to get divorced generally don't want to get divorced. They're acting like they hate each other when they actually still love each other. But they've forgotten how to express love, and they become very good at inadvertently expressing hatred. That's what the, the habit of contempt actually brings, the deleterious thing that it brings to a relationship. So he retrains couples to stop behaving in that way and to act according to what's really in their hearts, which is love for each other, and he repairs relationships. It's a, that's it. It's simple. It's hard, but it's simple. They stop expressing contempt. So this is, our, this is our goal in America. We're like a dysfunctional family in the United States expressing contempt. Look, you know you don't hate your mom or your sister-in-law, whoever it is in your family. That day after the New Hampshire rally, I just really had it on my mind. And so I was someplace else, Kentucky or West Virginia or someplace the next day giving a talk. And it's just a... It's a just as a kind of a poll of the audience, I'm going to ask you this question now too. How many of you love somebody with whom you disagree politically? That's, I'm going to round that off to 100%. <laughs> the rest of you weren't listening. <laughs> On your phones. It'll make you unhappy and not in love. The, this is important, right? Because basically what it suggests to us is that we love these people and we're acting as if we hated them and it's a motive attribution asymmetry problem based on an error. And the only way to get this back is to take that contempt that we're expressing and put in another reaction. We simply have to change the way that we react. And again, this is how you break any habit. The habit, habit formation is formed in the nucleus accumbens of the brain, a very ancient part behind the cerebral cortex evolved more than a million years ago. Anything that you do without thinking about it, that's reinforced behavior based on a reward, is processed in your nucleus accumbens. How do you break any bad habit? When you feel a, an urge to do something, let's say you're a smoker. You feel you want to smoke. Every time you want to smoke, do something else. Drink. <laughs> no. <clears throat> Anytime you feel an impulse, that's your nucleus accumbens pinging you. Reward time, reward time. And that's true if you have a habit of communication, like expressing contempt. I want to roll my eyes, right? Stop when you have the stimulus. Stop for as long as you can. This is how you break habits. And you put something else in in its place. What do you put in its place? I asked, this is a story that I told for the first time when I was here the last time. I told my friend the Dalai Lama. This is somebody I've been working with closely for the past seven years. We've written together in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and, and we, he's in this movie that you heard about before called The Pursuit that's on Netflix. He was in, he was in, a, he was in my, my, my documentary film. He's a lovely man. He's a wonderful man. He's taught me lots, and I love him. And I asked the Dalai Lama while I was working on this project, I said, Your Holiness, 
What should I do when I feel contempt? What, what reaction should I choose instead? And he said, warm-heartedness. And I said, you got anything else? Because <laughs> I don't know about that. I don't know. I think that sounds kind of pat and weak. He said, then I thought about it. He's a tough guy. He was exiled at age 16, tossed out of his native country, rolled over through naked communist Chinese aggression, led his people into exile, and has lived for 60 years in Dharamsala in northern India in a, in a community of exiles without passports this entire time. And this entire time, the entire time I have known him, he has never once expressed contempt for the communist Chinese that have denied him and his people their homeland. Not once. He starts every day praying for the Chinese leaders that they'll live happy and good lives with their families. That, my friends, is not weak. That's actually strong. Answering hatred with hatred, answering contempt with contempt, that's for weak people. Strong people answer contempt with warm-heartedness, answer hatred with love. They choose their own reaction. I said, Your Holiness, how do I do that? You know what he told me? Fake it. <laughs> the Dalai Lama told me to fake it. <laughs> Now, there's a lot of science behind that. Give the reaction that would be given by the person that you want to be, and you will become that person. There's a lot of research that backs that up. Choose your reaction. You're in charge. Do not be the master of your feelings. You have the ability to be persuasive. Only love is persuasive. Hatred is not. To be happier. Expressing love makes you happier. Making other people happier. Expressing love in the, in the face of contempt brings other people up. And, and actually maybe be, becoming the beginning of, of something good in this country instead of all the bad that's going on. That's what can happen with the love solution. Forget the policy solutions. The answer is in your hands. So before I finish, I turn it over to you. Now your homework. So we've covered three things. I've made three points. Number one is that love trumps policy. I hope I've, I've established that to your satisfaction. Number two is that we have a crisis of loneliness and romantic love. And number three is that we have a polarization and hatred problem politically in this country. So I want you to do three things. I want us to do three things. Here's homework assignment number one. And I want you to do all of this within the next two weeks. Number one. Next time somebody starts a policy conversation, I want you to look for the love solution. I want you to talk about love. I want you to be the person who brings up love, undying love, in a conversation about policy and politics. You're going to look kind of like a weirdo. And you're going to like it. Because I do. <laughs> I do. i got to tell you. I mean, I'm like you know, the love guy at this point. Dr. Love. Good. Good. Join me. Because that's where the action lies. Change the subject from technocracy to the heart. That's number one. Assignment number two, now it's going to get harder. I want each of you to take a risk with your heart. Now, some of you, I want you to actually declare your romantic love for somebody. If you're married, I want, don't want you to do that for anybody but your spouse. This <laughs> is like, I'm you know, wrecking families here at Notre Dame. Um, <laughs> I don't know, this guy told me to do it. I don't. <laughs> and it doesn't actually have to be romantic love. Look, you've, you're estranged from somebody. You love somebody and you haven't admitted it. Maybe in a long time. Maybe it's somebody in your family. Maybe it's one of your friends. It's probably, you know, there's probably some 
injury to your heart someplace because you haven't been able to say what really is in your heart. You get two weeks to figure out the biggest risk that you can viably take and declare your love. And you might get shot down. You might. And you're going to be better for it. But you're not going to be living a startup life until you do. And, and, and it's going to actually be contagious because people are going to see it. And it's going to be easier for you the next time. And somebody's going to witness it. And they're going to do it too. That's assignment number two. If you want to tell me the story, especially if it's funny, I'll use it in a speech. <laughs> if you let me. Number three, stand up to somebody on your own side on behalf of people with whom you disagree. It's super hard. It is, <laughs> it is super hard, right? Because we want our friends, and we want our friends to like us. And, and, and like, look, there are people on our side that are right, and there are people on the other side that are so wrong, right? Whatever your side is, whatever we happen to be talking about, some of these issues are really, really hot. But all of us have relatively strong political opinions. You get two weeks to stand up in love for somebody with whom you disagree. Watch how interactions change. Watch how many people unfriend you. Because you might do it on social media. And it'll feel right because you know you're doing right. Ganging up, piling on. It's so weak. <laughs> Expressing, now an ancillary way to do this, you can take that or assignment, that's assignment three, or you can take assignment 3A. Assignment 3A is going on social media looking for contempt and answering it with love on purpose. Right? Go out looking for the pathogen and meeting it with the generosity that we're talking about here. You can do it that way if you want. It has the same net effect. Do those three things and watch the magic actually start in your life. And then start thinking about the things that we haven't talked about here today. What are the big prob problems that you're confronting in your life that you see around you? What are the love solutions? What are the, what's the more efficient way to deal? Remember, St. Paul would say that nothing matters. Nothing matters except the love. You can come up with the most clever policy or business solution to anything in the world, and it is utterly meaningless if there is no love. You'll also have the best life that you can possibly get. Now, what better apostolate could there be coming from this great university than love coming from each one of us? Look, some of you are wearing University of Notre Dame shirts, right? You want everybody who sees a Notre Dame shirt to feel love coming from you, because then they're going to know that the source of your ideas and some part of the source of your love is this great university. And together, we put it on the map as the place that's known for this. Imagine how good that would be. I would love to be part of that project. And for the fact that you invited me here and made, me, made it possible for me to share these ideas with you and my love for you, my last words are thank you. We have a uh, tradition here at the program, is, uh, which is we always invite uh, one of our undergraduate students to ask uh, the first question. So any undergraduates have a question, sort of open mic, you can declare love for someone here. right now. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Mara? Hi, my name is Mara Bradley. I'm a senior here at Notre Dame. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank yeah. you. Sure. Um, I wanted to ask you a question about the epi epidemic of loneliness yeah. and how you contribute this to young people being afraid of real relationships. To what extent do you, sorry, to what extent do you think this is um, controlled by the hookup culture? In a lot of the theology classes here at Notre Dame, we talk about how the dating culture has changed so much and 
young people are afraid of real relationships. So. Mm -hmm. It's pretty interesting. So there's data on the hookup culture that shows that people are a lot less afraid of physical intimacy and a lot more afraid of true intimacy. And so, and what that suggests to us is exactly kind of what you'd you'd think that what really matters is that you know social rejection is a lot more painful than physical rejection. It's true, and and that's because it doesn't. If a hookup culture doesn't affect your heart very much at all, it has a long-term impact, of course, on your ability to form relationships. There's a lot of there's a lot of literature, a lot of research that shows that that hookup culture is horrible for for forming long-term love relationships, for sure. But I think it's because it's the it's the the the, the muscle memory of of avoiding true intimacy, getting a, a simulacrum for intimacy, but but avoiding real intimacy because it it once again it, it it reinforces the patterns of true fear that actually go into our lives today. Um, that's one of the reasons that what I suggest is I mean and what I see in the data very clearly is that the most successful couples are those that are actually. They're, they're completely intimate with their hearts before they're physically intimate. They're engaged and in love with each other and understanding each other in pure love before they actually live together and have sex. It's, we're doing it in exactly the opposite because of fear. Love is the traditional way. Fear is the non-traditional way. And that's why it's the opposite of love. Thank you for that. Another undergraduate? Hi, uh, Ryan Moore. Um, I was just wondering if you think that uh, distance has anything to do with uh, the kind of love that we're talking about, because I know that uh, like a lot of kids that come to universities like this, uh, we're really far away from home and relationships we might have with people back at home are uh, still like we want them to still be intimate, but the distance kind of like puts a strain on that. Yeah, for sure. And this is actually something, one of the reasons that it's so psychologically hard the first semester of your, of your freshman year in college is because you've attenuated your love relationships in such a big way. And you're developing new friendships, which are relationships of love, where there's lots of oxytocin, but you can have eye contact with a stranger. There's not, I mean, the studies are very clear. You get a ton of oxytocin for somebody you already love, but for a stranger, you get a little, but not nearly as much. And so we're craving that. We're having a physical gnawing at us to actually get the oxytocin that we crave, and that's why the loneliness is so acute. We try to remedy that with, uh, with social media or with you know, the tools. It's, I, I just read a very interesting paper. I just moved, okay? I just moved to, um, I moved from Bethesda, Maryland to Cambridge, Massachusetts, because you know, I'm a man of the people. <coughs> and, uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, <coughs> and, uh, and, 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 and when you move, it's hard when you move, right? I mean, because I'm super lonely. And my wife is super lonely. My daughter's lonely. I mean, we're lonely. Like, we're like, like little clouds up in the sky, right? And we've moved a lot of times. I've moved 18 times. My wife and I, since we've been married, we've moved 18 times, right? We've moved around a lot. And we usually change our names, too. And, uh, <clears throat> and, uh, and so I've been reading literature. Like, you know, when, you know, when something's not right in my life, I go and I read the literature on it. I want to find, I want to find the solutions. Look, I, got, you know, I, have, I study statistics. I should be able to read the papers on this. And, and one of the biggest mistakes that people make when they have this distance problem, is they actually try to solve the distance problem by getting closer uh, uh, virtually to the people with whom they have the distance and the strongest relationships, thus crowding out the ability of forming new relationships. So people you know, go home after class and, and, and just text with your friends from high school for hours and hours and hours and hours. That's a huge, that's the number one error. And back in the old days, you'd be talking to your, your, your neighbors on the phone. 
and not meeting new people. And so you basically have to take a bunch of risks with your heart again. And, and if you do, it'll greatly speed up the time that you actually start getting the oxytocin that you crave. You'll start building up these new friendships. Um, on average, it takes about six months before it starts to feel terrible, stops feeling terrible. And it takes about a year and a half before you realize you didn't make a mistake. So anyway, that's, I, I say that for your consumption. Three years before you're fully functional and happy. So I got you know, three years to go. Pray for me. <laughs> yes, sir. Just a quick observation. Yeah. First semester when you go away to college. That's how you get the microphone Oh, I'm going to say, the first semester you go away to college, you pretty much hate the place. Mm -hmm. But the second semester, you say, mm, it's not so bad. I think what you're talking about yeah. is a direct correlation. That's it? why. Yeah, that's yeah. why. Because you're basically, you made the friendships, and the friendships are what you really need. Um, you know, it's, it's, there's nothing really shocking about the idea that you're lonely the first semester, and then you have enough friends. But we actually have the neurochemistry that, that, that backs that up, and some, of the, and some of the data that show how we can fight against the tendency to do something that's self-destructive in the meantime. Yeah. Yes, sir. Hi, Ryan, graduate student. Um, so you talked about social media and how people immediately would attribute that to the like the, the fear epidemic, loneliness, things like that. Do you think that the sort of ease of glamorization of your life or sexual promiscuity plays into that in any way? So t tell me more. So I'm saying that, I mean, you're talking about hookup culture was mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. and then now it's kind of easy to like promote yourself in yeah. like a shallow <laughs> manner. So I just, yeah. you know, if, I guess if you had any thoughts on that. Yeah, well, I've, I've actually written about the, the concept of fame. So um, to back that up a little bit, you know, I, I, I always wind up quoting um, Aquinas because, you know, that's what we all do. And, and, uh, I mean, you got to quote one guy, right? It's a, and, and you're done with the Bible. Um, <clears throat> Aquinas said that there are four substitutes for God, right? In, in the Summa Theologica, right? I mean, it said that the four substitutes for, I mean, people want God. We want God. And there's nobody in this room that's going to argue with me that we want God. But the problem is that God can be inconvenient. You know, it's sometimes it feels like a lot of one-way conversations. Um, it, it, it's, it, it feels ambiguous. Uh, he doesn't feel like you can't see him. Um, sometimes you can't feel him, and there's lots of rules. Okay, so people will take a substitute for God. And, he's, and, and Aquinas says there are four substitutes for God. Money, power, pleasure, and fame. Those are the four substitutes. They feel a little bit divine. The problem is that they make you walk in exactly the wrong direction, away from God. And only when you see that these are idols that you flip around and walk back, come back walking the other direction. Of the four idols, there's only one that actually brings no satisfaction at all, and that's fame. The only one, I mean, it's like money, fine. You can do all kinds of fun stuff. It's not, you don't, it, you pursue it, you'll ruin your life for sure, to the exclusion of all else. Power, you can do good things with power. Pleasure, it's fun as far as it goes. We love play. We're Catholics. Pleasure's great, right? Drink up, right? But <laughs> look around Protestants here. And, and so, but fame, some, so, sorry, some of you are probably Protestants. I apologize for that. Not really. Any, the, um, <clears throat> Fame is the only one where you can only ever be happy in spite of it. That's an empirical regularity. It's, one of, it's a, a research finding that the more, the, the, the more famous you are, you can still be happy only in spite of the fame if you do a bunch of things right and most people don't. Okay, so what's going on with social media culture? Anybody can be a celebrity. Now, 
measured in any particular way. It means, so maybe if you have 100 followers, that makes you a celebrity in your own mind. But if you know more people, more people know you than you know, that's a ratio, that's kind of a fame ratio. And anybody can get it. This is not natural. This is not what we need. And that's what's actually bringing people to higher and higher and higher levels of loneliness and anxiety because of that particular idol. We've made that idol easy. That's probably the most deleterious impact of social media is that sort of idolatry, which we've facilitated with ruthless efficiency. Yes, ma'am. You got a, you got a mic coming. Um, Reagan Fitzgerald, I'm a junior. Concerning your concern about the lack of romantic relationships among young people, I was wondering what you would respond to kind of a common argument that it's better that young people are holding off on relationships in the sense that it gives them a chance to form their own identity independent of someone else. Mm. So, the, the, so the argument is that waiting on romantic relationships makes it possible for us to figure out who we are in the first place. It's hard to assess that. I'm not sure how I feel about it. I'm not, I'm not sympathetic to it because I think we're not supposed to be alone. I'm not, I'm not sure we're supposed to be completely autonomous identities in the first place. I think that we're interrelated, we're integrally interrelated. This is sort of the magic of Catholicism, by the way. The hyper-rationality and individualism of the Enlightenment leads to each person being a, 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 an autonomous being. That could, and the, the, the hyper autonomy of being, um, Catholics have a, a, have been have been especially good at marrying up the autonomy of the individual with the primacy of the community and the importance of relationships. Our, our theology uniquely uniquely lends itself to this. I have never seen. I mean, I've seen cases where people have horrible codependent relationships and lose their own sense of individuality, but that's a different kind of pathology. Then I see the, the way on the other tail, the problem that we see today. And so I also look at the data. I mean, that the, the number one predictor in, in happiness for adults is a, is a high-quality marriage. Number one predictor. The number one predictor of a high-quality marriage is not waiting too long. <laughs> Right? It's just people wait way too long to get married. And, and, and it, it goes down to, I mean, you can think about it. I'm kind of a business school guy. Your marriage shouldn't be a merger. It should be a startup. I mean, you should start, start right? I mean, it's, you understand what, it shouldn't be a hostile takeover for sure, but you know. <laughs> and, and so if you wait too long, you know, that, then you're going to have weight, in a, in, a, in a sense, way too much autonomy, and it compromises your ability to actually meld together, to, to see yourselves as not just one flesh, but as really one heart, and which is one of the great joys of life. Thank you for that. It's a beautiful question. Yes, ma'am, and we'll come right back up to you. <clears throat> Hi, Maggie, sophomore. Um, I'm wondering what the place for policy is in offering love solutions or encountering um, the culture of contempt, if this is something that really is gonna be a cultural movement grounded in relationship in small communities that eventually spreads, or if policymakers can in some way affect that process. So it's a, it's a super smart question because you made a distinction that I wanna, I, wanna, I wanna bring out a little bit more. You started by asking what's the policy solution, but then you said what can policymakers do? Different questions, right? Policymakers have to act as moral people. That's very different than setting a specific policy. See what I'm saying, right? I mean, here's the problem. We don't need a new policy of civility, which by the way, I'm totally against civility. Civility is garbage. Right? If I tell you, my wife Esther and I were civil to each other. We're like, get counseling immediately. Right? 
Tolerance, garbage, love, love. That's actually what we need. And so the only solution to this is for policymakers and politicians themselves to exhibit the warm-heartedness, the love, the lack of contempt that I'm talking about. That's the solution. This is a, a leader's solution. That's what I'm talking to you. You're leaders. Everybody in this room, you lead something, and a bunch of you are going to lead big things. Some of you have led big companies, and some of you are going to do that. Maybe some of you will be politicians. I'll pray for you. But what I want from you, what I need from you the most is to demonstrate the virtue that I'm talking about here because you deserve to be happy and you need to bring happiness to other people. Remember, without love, it's meaningless. Your apostolate is to lift other people up and bring them together, which is the essence of how love works. That's, how it, that's your apostolate. And your, and your work is just an, a vehicle for your apostolate, right? I mean, right now I'm talking about mostly secular things. But this is my apostolate. Um, and, and when I'm on a, on, on a really super, in a sec, super secular orientation, like on a secular campus, it's an undercover apostolate. Right? But that's what policymakers and leaders and politicians, that, that's what they should do too. I'm not worried about the policy per se. I'm worried about the policymakers and, the, and their souls. Who's next? Right back here, and we'll, and we'll come up to you next, sir. Yeah. Hi, Dr. Brooks. Thanks for being here. Yeah. Uh, I'm a jerk. You're going to show true love, right? True love. Absolutely. True love. Uh, I'm a junior economics major, and I actually wonder uh, that it's kind of ironic at first look that a PhD economist would end up talking about love and happiness, yeah. which is one of the things that doesn't seem to be directly applicable. Good, right? Um, yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what would you say that economics as a field of study is missing in terms of talking about things like love, happiness, and things that otherwise aren't really quantifiable, and what needs to change? Oh, that's such a smart question. Um, it took me years to throw off my chains. Years. Um, Throw off my canes. Sorry. The um, the uh, no. It's a, it's it's like that's a that's such a dad joke. Like dad PhD, PhD dad economist joke. Anyway, so um, so what's wrong with economics today? It's the primacy of a machine over the meaning, the reason for the creation of the machine in the first place. Look, we, when we talk about economic systems, largely, particularly in the West, we're talking about how the market systems and the free enterprise system can distribute goods and services in a way that lifts people up, that gives them opportunity, that creates the most progress, that creates the most profit. That's what we're talking about mostly in, 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 the, in, the, in the context of the study of economics, particularly economics in the West. But you have to ask yourself, and, and again, this is not about economics. You're studying sociology or political science or philosophy or whatever. What's the why, right? What's the why of doing any of this in the first place? You know St. Paul's answer, right? But if you don't ask yourself, what's the love thing that we need to get right first, then nothing else is going to work. You know, there's a huge debate in our society today of whether capitalism is good or capitalism is bad, whether socialism is good or socialism is bad. Any ism will be a problem when we don't actually get our hearts in order first. Why? Because any system will express what's supposed to be written on our hearts. It'll express it for good or for ill in much the same way that, I mean, e economics of market economies, market economies are just a machine. They're like your car. You can use your car for great good to go to work and support your family, or you can use it for great ill by getting drunk and driving it into the front, you know, into the living room of your neighbor's house and killing them. You can, a machine can be used for good or for ill. And it, 
whether it is for good or ill has everything to do with your motive and the orientation of your heart. That's what's missing. We never talk about the morals. We never talk about the motives. We never talk about the ethics that actually should, rely, should, should lie behind that are, in fact, the why of the economics we study in the first place. That's why a liberal education is super important. That's why studying at Notre Dame is really important, right? Because you had that grounding. Most people don't. That's your postulate. Who's next? You, sir. You got a mic coming to you. I haven't, I've been pondering this question for a while, and maybe I have an answer now, thanks to what you've been talking about. Have you noticed a change in speech patterns amongst young people? Mm -hmm. When they talk, they go, da 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 And is that a mark of fear? <laughs> because it doesn't sound like confidence. It's like, I'm saying all this, and then it's a question. Hmm. Rather than because I really don't want to offend anybody, I really don't. I'm not sure what's going on, but the speech patterns in this country have changed dramatically, and I work with people all the time. I, and it grates on my ear, but I maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm an old fogey, and I don't know. <laughs> uh, thank you for that. I, you know, I'm not a linguist, but I actually have heard that hypothesis put forward. The whole, the fact that when people who are less confident, they tend to finish their sentence um, as if it were a question, even when it's not a question. I've heard that hypothesis put forward. I don't know what the data suggests, but it seems persuasive. It seems persuasive? Wait a minute, I just, yeah. the, uh, the, uh, pe <laughs> so, so it's, maybe it's true. Maybe that's actually, that's a, that's a pretty interesting hypothesis. Thank you for that. I like it. I'm, I'm going to put. I'm going I'm gonna, I'm gonna to put it into the research machine. That's right. Thanks. Yeah, we'll get a couple more. All right. Thank you very much for coming here. Thanks. CJ, graduate business student. Here. Uh -huh. uh, I was wondering if you could share how you overcame the fear you experienced when you first met your wife. Hmm. And perhaps that could help us, younger people. And overcoming our own fears. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a personal question. Sorry. Next. No, the. Um, <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> you want know, to be a real person here? I mean, come on, man. So, um, I met my wife. I was a professional classical musician, and I was playing the French horn. I was twenty. I just turned twenty-four. I was on the road. Uh, I was playing a, on a concert tour, a chamber music tour in the Burgundy region of France. And uh, I was super jet lagged, and I was I walked out on stage with my French horn, French horn player, and and I looked out in the audience, and there was this girl looking up, and she's smiling, and she was so pretty, and not that many girls smiled at me in those days, so that was like unusual, so um, I said I'm gonna I'm gonna talk to her afterward, talk to her afterward, you know, good red blooded American boy, and I went I made a beeline for her after the concert, right, because she was memorable, and 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 she didn't speak a word of English, like zero words of English. Um, it, I, I learned through an interpreter that she was not French, that she was from, she was Catalan, she was from Barcelona, she was Spanish. And, uh, and so I did what you, know, you would do when you can't have any communication at all, I asked her out. <laughs> <laughs> and we went out to dinner and you know, it's like, you know, she speak no English and I spoke no, 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 no language in common. And um, went out a couple of times over the next three or four days and then I went home and I called up my dad and I said, I met the girl I'm gonna marry. And he said, great, let's meet her. I said, well, I got some problems. I got problems. <laughs> um, I, she's not, like, not in this country. Um, wrong side of the Atlantic. Uh, she doesn't speak English, and she has no idea we're going to get married, and I don't want her to call the cops. So, 
But I set about a plan. I set about a, a pretty entrepreneurial plan. And uh, over the course of the year, I always kept in touch, making sure that this was not insane. Um, I went over and visited. And unbeknownst to her, I had to quit my job and I accepted a position in the Barcelona Symphony. And I moved to Barcelona in hot pursuit with the goal of convincing her to marry me. And it took a year and a half, but I closed the deal. <laughs> and today our kids are 21, 19, and 16. We've been married 28 years. No, it's amazing, right? Except that it was super scary. It was insane. People were telling me this is, this is nuts, right? But I'm like, what else is there to live for? I mean, what, what, so what's the worst that can happen? I get a field trip to Barcelona. What's the worst that can, I mean, it's like this, it was, and, 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 and it turned, it looks like it turned out okay. I mean, I could have gotten so shot down and then I wouldn't, I would have been telling some other story along those lines. But it was, the greatest thing in my life was overcoming the fear of doing something that nuts. It was so powerful. So the, the fact that it worked out is icing on the cake. But the fact that I was able to overcome that fear because I was in love, man, I was in love. And I, I, I was going to fight for that. I never met anybody like her. I still haven't. She's still so pretty. You know, I, I can't believe she actually married me. It's because she didn't speak the language. Anyway, so, <clears throat> and, uh, and, and so overcoming, I don't know how I actually overcome the fear of that, except that it was just, I had this, this, this I, I believe that God wanted me to do that. I mean, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe God was like, don't do it. <laughs> That's crazy. That's a, um, but it was, uh, it, was a, it was actually a great experience. It was a formative experience in my life. I highly, highly recommend it to you. <laughs> Spain's great, too, by the way. Uh, yeah. Let's go ahead. Two questions in the back here. And then... My name is Michaela Duval, and I'm getting a, what Father Ted called a PhD, which is putting hubby through. So I, my oh, husband nice. is in law school. Uh -huh. So um, I had a question about um, you kind of transitioning from the political beliefs you were raised with to conservatism and how um, kind of in this climate, there's a lot of millennials that I feel like we're some of us were raised conservative and then we kind of lean more moderate because of the Trump era, because mm -hmm. of, you know, because of the division in politics. And so right. I was wondering, um, sometimes people in your family become, don't become your enemies, but sometimes it feels that way, you know? And so I was wondering if you had any advice with that and like overcoming conflict with people you love when you change what you believe. Yeah. Another question too. We'll yeah, for sure. Oh, hi, my name is Maria Camila Ospina. I'm from Colombia and I'm here in a LLM program, the Masters in Law. Uh, I'm from Colombia and there we are just ending an armed conflict like a civil war, you might know. So we have like a whole country without love and actually we are absolutely divided like pro-peace agreement and con-pro-agreement. So I was wondering how to make like this love that seems like a private issue, like private relationships, like really a pu public issue, like for a whole country. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, I appreciate that um, a lot. So quickly, um, when family relationships fracture, it's worth pointing out that that which binds you is a lot more important than that which divides you. When you disagree on politics, it's just politics. And we have a tendency to talk about it because everybody in America is talking about it. But it's incredibly boring. We're talking about the most boring thing and ripping ourselves apart over something that's boring and terrible. 
it's, it's really worth pointing out that you have the power to talk about what matters the most, to talk about things that actually matter more, and where love is fostered and where disagreement is actually not fomented. In other words, this is a fancy way of saying change the subject. <clears throat> Focus on the things that you both really care about a lot. When, I'm, when I bring Democrats and Republicans together, which I frequently do in my work, one of the things that I'll, I'll ask them to do, to start doing, is to start by describing their kids to each other. And they'll wind up complaining about their teenage kids to each other and, 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 the, and their love relationships. Or I'll ask them to say, tell, me, tell each one to the other about somebody you truly love and why. Why? Because that's the human story. Stories, human I, I, political identity divides. Human stories unite. Because that's the stuff that we really, really have in common. Talk about things that they really love. And that will engage them at a much deeper level. That's what I recommend for this Thanksgiving. Um, <clears throat> Colombia is a really interesting place. I have a lot of in-laws in Barranquilla. And during the drug wars, everybody had, knew, knew somebody who was killed. Um, and during the Civil War, it was, it, I mean, it was really terrible. Something's ghastly. It's something that we can't really understand in the United States, at least you know, people who have been around in the modern era. They, but people wrote about the American Civil War and its aftermath in much the same way that Colombians talk about it today and the way that you just talked about it here today. What can, what can leaders do? Leaders, actually, they're supposed to uh, model the behavior that they want to see. So when leaders talk about reconciliation but don't behave with reconciliation, it will not endure. When leaders want people to get along with each other but they are motivated by hate, it will not work. So what we actually need, inevitably, in a case of conflict, whether it's the Palestinian-Israeli conflict or both sides of the, of the, the Colombian Civil War, uh, the conflict that was racked the country apart, is you actually need politicians who are overtly engaging in forgiveness and acts of love. And, and that, can, that can work. It's interesting. I saw, I, I, there's a documentary film you probably saw about people who had, in Colombia, who had family members that were murdered by the, by, the, by, the, by the guerrillas. And they would actually, the guerrillas would repent of this and go back and meet the family members of the people that they had killed and they would forgive each other on camera. It's like, ugh, you, can't, you can barely stand to watch it because it's so heavy and it's so powerful. Leaders need to lead with that kind of courage. And there's nothing that requires more courage than authentic forgiveness in the case of unforgivable crimes. That's how I work with politicians. Okay, before we conclude, um, I'm going to ask you to do one more thing. Yeah. Um, so we had dinner last night, lovely time. Uh, Dr. Brooks mentioned his, his movie he just made, and I'm thinking, oh, I was supposed to watch that, I forgot. Um, so I got up at 4 in the morning, and I watched it. That's funny. <laughs> Watching Netflix at 4 a.m., man. And, and it's phenomenal. <laughs> Thank you. So I want you, can you just tell us, you should all watch mm -hmm. this, but can you tell us about yeah. it just a little? So... Uh, we fit, uh, a, a Netflix picture, it's called The Pursuit. Uh, it's about how communities in poverty can lift themselves up and in so doing show all of us how to live better and happier lives. It's shot in a, uh, in a, in a slum in India and in a little coal mining town in Kentucky um, on the streets and on, in different places in Europe, a homeless shelter in New York. It talks to people who are in the worst and best of circumstances about what the secrets to a successful life is really all about and what we can learn from people at the margins of society. Again, this is a super, super Catholic idea. You know, it's uh, Cardinal Francis George, the great Cardinal Francis George of Chicago. Uh, at one point, he was talking to these, a bunch of donors, and he said, remember, the poor need you to pull them out of poverty. And also remember that you need the poor to pull you out of hell. <laughs> Gutsy move, man. So um, that's not how I fundraise. But <clears throat> he, 
the point is basically that the people at the periphery of society, and la periferia de la sociedad, according to Pope Francis, he always talks about it, right? The people at the periphery of society, they are our salvation, right? So, so that's just what I'm trying to do. This is the postulate that comes from this film. It's not a religious film. But when you see it, it's like we're going to learn from the people at the margins of our society. That's what this movie is really all about. So the filmmakers followed me around for three years all over the world for three years. It was a long time in the making. It's the first time I've ever made a documentary film. Um, and in the end, it shows what I think are the most important things. I would love for you to watch it, and I would love to know whether or not that you find it useful. And if you do, I'd like you to share it. It's on Netflix. It's called The Pursuit. If you want to look at the website for the movie, it's called thepursuitmovie.com. Um, thank you for watching it, and uh, um, let me know how you think. God bless you all. Please join me in thanking Dr. Jack. <laughs>